You're listening to another podcast from I'dRatherBeWriting.com, and today I have the privilege of speaking with Anne Gentle, who's the author of the newly published Conversation and Community, the Social Web for Documentation, which just came out this month from XML Press. And Anne is also a regular blogger that you may know at JustRightClick.com, and she's She's kind of on the latest edge of, of pretty much everything from Twitter to, to blogs to wikis, and, and she's a frequent presenter at conferences, so we're lucky to have this opportunity to speak with Anne. So Anne, in your book, let's just jump right into it. You talk about the importance of trying to find out where users are having their conversations. Why is this important? Well, I think it's important because of some of the things that I talk about in the rest of the book about how difficult it is to build community and how much time it can take. And so if you find out where your users are already talking to each other and you find out if they are already building community somewhere, that's an important um, already built, you know, difficult to build entity that you should be able to at least for a while figure out if you have a place in there. Now, there, you know, there's, there's a, a level of difficulty in some organizations because there are good reasons for letting users have their own communities and the company not butting in. And, um, you know, another kind of dangerous area, and I hadn't heard this term until um, Sarah O'Keefe uh, was a technical reviewer of the book. She's like, oh, you know, I think you should mention AstroTurf. And I had never heard of this. And what that is, is building like a false grassroots effort by a company. And if that gets um, revealed, it's really damaging because you've built what more or less is fake grass. <laughs> so, Hi. I, yeah, I had never heard that term. And it's, it seems to be a term used a lot more in like the political science area um, and especially for like activist groups. If you build AstroTurf, you're going to get annihilated. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, that that does seem kind of weird. I mean, I, I hadn't heard that term before either. And I, I, I read that, I believe, in your book. You talked about that. Um, now, so let's say that you, you're trying to scope out where their conversations are and if it's appropriate for you to jump in or if, if it's more of a, a user-only kind of forum. Um, what do you do if you don't find any conversations at all? <laughs> that can happen, absolutely. Um, you know, there are tools that let you do what I call listening. And by listening, I mean that you're reading everything you can that's that's on a social media site. And to some extent, you don't want to spook people by um, inappropriately butting in on a conversation. You know, if there if you do if you use search.twitter.com and you find something in a conversation that you can add to, you could certainly you know, keep talking there, use the appropriate hashtags, that kind of thing. And so in some ways, you know, search.twitter.com is kind of a unique search engine in that it's a real-time engine, right? It's updating immediately. You can't find things older than like seven to ten days old. It's kind of a unique place to truly listen and, and, and just try to figure out what people are talking about. Now, you, you know, like I said, you don't want to spook people and you don't want to seem like you're stalking. <laughs> And you want to just kind of, it's kind of like gently interrupting a conversation at a party. Figure out if it's really a good idea or not to do. But, you know, there's there's Technorati, which is a great blog search engine. Um, there's Yahoo Pipes, which is a, a way to um, 
look for conversations that aren't on your company's domain. Um, there's a, a Yahoo pipe called the Social Media Firehose, and I've found that really useful um, when working on um, just where are people talking about the product I document, which is IMIS, which is uh, for nonprofit software. So trying to just figure out where are people already talking online to each other, to people in your company. You know, your own support forums may be a wealth of uh, conversation-like um, content. You know, I I um I would love to set up all these search alerts or RSS feeds from Twitter keywords and blog search alerts. I I sometimes feel like I am just not uh, sometimes in the right position that I should be, um, because most most of my users are behind the firewall. They're old school, so they're not really on a lot of social media. And they just kind of talk amongst themselves. That's where a lot of their conversations are. I have other groups of users that, that are online and, and they do talk and there is that social media opportunity. But but uh, a lot of times people, people, for example, the other day I heard that uh, our software was somewhat com- confusing. It was complicated. It was difficult. And I was like, man, I'd never heard that before. Is there any way to, to enable a conversation that you could then listen in on? when these people don't engage in social media? Well, you know, um, the book Groundswell was a great resource for me while writing this book because they have this thing called the Social Technographics Tool, and it actually has this ladder of activeness in social media. And they use a lot of demographic information, so, you know, it's like uh, Hispanic males age 18 to 35, are they active in social media, and on what level are they active in social media? And so I, I actually think that's why listening first is important, because you may find out that, A, you know, you're going to butt in somewhere where you're not really invited, um, or B, that... Um, the, the kinds of things people are complaining about need to go maybe into another part of your organization. And so, in a way, the technical writer becomes this kind of conduit for the for just an alert system, letting other people in the company know that there's a problem. You know, the same thing happens, like, um, if, if you are really in line with a pre-sales alignment in your organization, and so you're helping to sell the product on its value and the return on investment if you buy it, well, then the, can't, the types of conversations that are more strategic for you to tap are the ones about um, what problems are customers trying to solve with this product, you know, that kind of thing. But if your alignment is more on the customer support end, then you're actually actively looking for what problems are they having today and how can I relay these conversations that people are having to the right departments in my company to help people fix that problem. Do, do you know what I mean? That's why it's kind of complicated. Yeah. And, you know, something came to my mind while you were explaining that. In the book, you talk about the importance of blogging and how that can kind of engender trust and, and start a conversation with users. Um, and, and, of course, most companies, uh, they have internal blogs, right? Sure. As well as external blogs. And we have a lot of internal blogs where I'm at, actually. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, and, and they're great conversation enablers, and people feel a lot safer. Uh What's been your experience of, of blogging and, and and how how does it kind of foster the communication with users? Yeah, well, you know, one of the reasons I wrote this book, or just I just felt this compelled to write this book because I had this really unique experience at BMC where I was kind of tapped on the shoulder. I was the first woman to blog at Talk BMC. 
um, we had this whole like PR um, process to even be allowed, and I was, you know, passed through with flying colors, and it was just this real um, honor and opportunity to write about things that I was learning about at the time. I was learning about um, the IT infrastructure library. Um, I was learning about business service management and trying to build these um, docs that would help other people make connections that weren't there before with the products. Um, you know, everything from like when a help t- ticket is logged, uh, make sure that you know exactly how many dollars are being, you know, spent to solve the problem. And if that server goes down in the middle of the night somewhere and it doesn't cost the company a lot of money, you can move that ticket down further on the stack. And so there was just a lot of things that the company was working on that really, it helped to get customers listening to what we were saying. And, you know, I had people after the fact who were industry analysts at the time were like, oh yeah, I subscribe to your blog. So it wasn't just customers, but it was um, people looking at what BMC was doing um, to really move IT closer to business management and the money that was spent in IT. And and so it was this time where we really could um, adopt the Clue Chain, Clue Train Manifesto where markets are conversations. Um, markets are, you know, and, and it sounds kind of crazy, but I had a couple of people who just really believed it that could mentor me along. And I don't know if that answers the original question, but, you know, it was my experience that, I got to go to user conferences and talk to customers and there was, I remember this one conference I went to, it was in Austin and um, turns out these two brothers worked at two separate companies, both using BMC products. And it was great because it was meeting real people who were really struggling with the things we were trying to help them with. Another example in your book, I believe you talked about Sarah Maddox and her Atlassian blog and, and yeah. you want to mention that? Sure. That was another great story. She said that um, her blog is a professional blog about technical writing, but when but she's very open about the fact of where she works. She works for Atlassian and she's the main writer on the Confluence Wiki and she would actually have customers find her blog that was separate from Atlassian and ask her questions about the Atlassian products. And I just think that's great that you know, it's kind of like the Twitter um, stories that you see of customer service. People get immediate response from Twitter because it's a real connection, and, and the employee takes immediate ownership of whatever it is that customer had a problem with and fixes it. And, and you know, that's where Sarah's blog, I think, is a wonderful example of she's taking personal pride in what she documents. I think that's great. No. Now, Sarah does a lot of, of work with wikis, and this is a chapter that I found most interesting from your book, actually. Well, not most interesting, but but it seems like you really know wikis well, and it showed, especially in that chapter. Okay. Um, and you mentioned that wikis are used more internally than externally. Do you want to – why why is that? Yeah, and that was um, actually the results of a survey um, from uh, CIDM, which is Joe Hackus's, um you know, tech com managers organization, you know, so the survey size is probably, you know, I want to say under 500 people, but I found it really fascinating that for the most part, the exposure tech writers had had to wikis was behind a firewall. Now, Stuart Mater is the real pro in this area of like the whole idea of the enterprise wiki and how they are just really powerful to get information out of your email box, um, share it, you know, 
the best tip I ever heard from him was put your meeting agenda on the wiki, then everybody can get to it and, and it'll be fully fleshed out before you even go to a meeting. Now, what I think the big part about wikis being internally used more than externally is that a lot of wikis connect to what is probably your Windows authentication server anyway, and so there's a lot of trust because the online identity is already there. And so a lot of the any any anonymous behavior that you would want to kind of squash out is easily squashed out because you have this trusted system of online identity. So that's some of what's going on. Um, and I also think that, you know, I'm, I'm guessing Alan Porter's book um, that's coming out from XML Press next year is going to really be able to talk a lot more about this. The, the usefulness of wikis internally is a lot more for collaboration, information sharing, and especially project management. And because it's just this fast web page edit and just a lot of, you know, conversational kind of things can happen in a trusted environment. And uh, my book didn't address it too much because I am much more interested in, well, what happens when you take it out to a community of users? And uh, that's more interesting to me. Yeah, and well, one, of the th- one of the things, I'm obviously approaching this book and considering these questions from my own perspective, and I, I do most of my documentation behind the firewall. And I, I often get this false idea that, that these tools, wikis, blogs, Twitter, are for web, not, not really intranet, corporate, behind-the-firewall type use. And I, I think that your discussion about wikis and their popularity internally um, just kind of combats that idea and lets me know that, hey, all these tools, they work in the enterprise um, outside of the web as well. One of the things that I'm really fascinated by is, um, well, I don't know if I'm really fascinated, but I, it intrigues me, this this rule of 9091 yeah. about how, how only basically 90% will be silent lurkers when in your community, 9% will contribute sometimes, and 1% will actively contribute. So how can you how can you increase those contributions from one percent to maybe two percent or something? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's uh, it's researched and documented over and over again. Um, even in the land of like email lists, you're going to have one percent of people who are actively posting to the email list. So it really is an interesting to study in human behavior, um, and you really can't get much above. You can get into 1.7%. You can get into one point. You know, I guess you could maybe get up into 2%. But just understanding that you have to create this mass of 100 people before you get one person who will even make an edit or actually create a page. But now in your book, you you, you kind of expose that. You said that, okay, if if it's only 1% who actively contribute... That's fine, but those statistics can somehow be skewed. Sure. And so, yeah, the ways you do that, you you make it easy to contribute. You offer a sandbox page. You offer tutorial information. You help. You welcome new people to the wiki so that they feel comfortable. And you help them make connections with each other so that they know that if they make an edit, it will be a a trust has been established and they won't be... um, kind of lambasted for 
making an edit inappropriately or commenting inappropriately. And especially when you think about this in an internal environment, you know the people you work with. And so if you trust them to make edits, that you, these will happen more, more easily. You can also encourage that people make edits rather than feeling obligated to create a whole new page or create, you know, like imagine you're working with somebody in your company and you're like, can you write that whole chapter? That'd be great. <laughs> it's just not realistic. And so a lot of what you can do is just encourage people to make edits and discuss the edits. And that's definitely it. That's definitely going to help you get in those nine percenters very active. And those nine percenters can be very useful in your wiki, right? And the other thing is, um, you know, make sure that people are identified and there are a lot of motivations that come out of that identification. So if you contribute, reward them with, you know, kind of that rating system. Um, I mean, you and I know probably what motivates us. It's a lot of links to our blog. It's a lot of, um, hey, I found this really useful. I mean, that motivates me very highly. And so if you think about using those kinds of uh, intrinsic rewards, um, just to make sure people know, oh, this is very helpful. Thank you for contributing to the wiki. And then, yeah, go ahead. Well, you also mentioned uh, this concept of readware, which I, I find fascinating. Oh, I Can you that. explain that? Sure. So readware in the printed land is how you open a cookbook that your mom has been using for 20 years, and it falls open to the favorite family recipes. And so that's the idea of readware. And so part of what I'm trying to think about is how can you take the idea of a cookbook that opens your favorite recipes and apply that to online help or a wiki? What markers um, indicate that people are finding a particular article really useful? Um, is it that there, uh, there are a lot of edits on at the page? Is it that it's a highly rated page? Is it that a lot of people look at the page? Is it, you know, web statistics kind of thing? And that all ties into how do you find the value in even introducing social media? Um, and so there are Readware is this really exciting, I think, um, is, is, the tag ta is the page tagged a lot? That might show Readware. But it's a great way of thinking of what's the most useful content for our users. And then in showing it. Yeah, and one other thing that struck me that I was reading in your book, which, uh, which was kind of where I was going earlier with the skewed stati statistics, is that you said that, yeah, okay, maybe you only get 1% of people really contributing, but sometimes those contributions are the large chunks of information, and then the million little edits are by the organizers who are just editing for grammar and organizing it and categorizing it. Yeah. And so so that 1% can be somewhat false and misleading. Yeah, I love that. And, and if you look at the Wikipedia statistics, half of the edits are done by 0.7%. But it is that supporting 9%, I think, that Wikipedia gets a lot of gain from. They may have skewed their 9% up into really high percentages. Maybe that's the real success. You know, understanding that you're going to be around 1% for the real contributions, but if you maybe if you can skew your 9% into 10 to 15%, you're going to do real well. Yeah, you know, um, we do actually... It, this book got me thinking a lot about, like, different ways that that all these techniques could apply to me. Oh, that's we do have this, uh, well, I immediately thought of this Writer River Publish 2 model where I'm trying to encourage people to contribute links. And and it does follow about the 1% rule uh -huh. <laughs> where, where you get about 1% of the people I've invited actively contributing. I was going to put and that yet, in email and I thought, no, he's going to figure that out. You have four, like 450 <laughs> subscribers and there's probably five people that are, are real contributors, right? 
but they are well actually it's been it's been kind of taking off lately there's a lot of lot more people that are interested but i'm thinking i need to find ways to recognize their contributions and to make them feel really good about it rather than just ignoring it right or or just oh. reading it. i mean i want to i want to somehow praise them and and it got me it got my my brain wheels turning here thinking about possibly having like a newsletter of all the contributions over the month and kind of their names highlighted and links to them or something. Oh, that's right. But but I definitely thought about that. And I also, I mentioned that I mostly work behind the firewall, but we also have this this strange open source, not a strange, but we have an open source movement uh, where where we have like developers who contribute code and we have some technical writers who have volunteered. It's just one part of the organization that I, I never see because the project's really aren't billable for me so i can't uh-huh. they're they're almost like pro bono projects if i have a spare time yeah um but but it got me thinking about what could i do to try to increase the number of participants either developers or technical writers and and you know whether it's blogging or just uh being more aware of their contributions and recognizing them them mm-hmm. as individuals mm-hmm. well and you know uh, i don't know if you've read the um the article free by Chris Anderson, the wired editor. Yeah. And yeah. so a lot of what I read, like I, I need to read it again, but a lot of what I saw there was like, there's this whole idea of an attention economy. And what's really kind of cool about what you've built with your blog and stuff is that you have a lot of currency in the attention economy. Do you know what I mean? And so if yeah. you're motivated by that, um, you, you could do a lot with uh, motivations there. I think that's what Twitter's strategy is, right? They've got a huge attention economy, and now they're going to convert it to a business model later. Is that their strategy? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want them to go away. I don't know. You know, I've been to – so I went to South by Southwest Interactive two years ago, and uh, they usually have Austin's bar camp, like, sometime around that time period, just because a lot of people are in town, and it's kind of fun. And, and so they actually invited the Twitter people two years ago just to just to talk to community members. and. You know, I, I couldn't attend that session, but I think the main thing is that people just adore Twitter. And a lot of adoration turns into, yeah, you can pretty much print money. So, you know, who knows where they'll really go with it. But one of the ideas I loved I saw recently was, um, and I don't know if you saw this, I don't know if I was one of the few on their list, but um, they had um, Twitter sayings that could be turned into threadless T-shirts. Did you see any of those? I, I have not seen that. Yeah, so that's a crazy idea, but like you can make a lot of money selling t-shirts on the internet, right? <laughs> so um, you could vote for a tweet that you saw to go on a t-shirt. And so on this other site, the t-shirts would be voted up based on wow. the tweet that you liked, you know? So Will Sansbury had a great cool. one about, um, and I don't remember the exact tweet, but it was in 140 characters. He was saying, no, oh, my wife is the hue of Facebook and I'm the glow of Twitter while we sit here after the kids have gone to bed. And it was exactly what my husband and I <laughs> did lots of nights. And so it was just like, I totally have to vote for that. It was the greatest little tweet, you know? I'd wear that on a t-shirt. Well, you know, I I think Twitter is, is fascinating. And I've seen some or heard about some presentations for how people are trying to implement Twitter and documentation. And you talked earlier about using Twitter to listen in on the conversations. Mm-hmm. How can you use Twitter to to go beyond that? Is, is, it, is it just a listening tool to tap into the pulse of your users, or can it be more than that? Well, you know, there, it's really in its early stages of people really trying to figure it out. And Sarah Maddox was one of the first ones. 
And um, what she has done, the way their Twitter account works for their company is anyone can use it. And so she basically used it as a way to post little tidbits about their release notes. And so Twitter was more or less a pointer to um, the more juicy content. And so I think that's one model. Um, another model may be kind of just um, setting up a Twitter account that does tips and tricks. And, you know, part of the process of writing this book was talking to other people and one of the things um, a reviewer pointed out to me is that you have to try to find out in your company what the overall content strategy is and then see where, A, your tech pub's content fits in and, B, where the social media intersection may be. And so what else I would say is, and, and we're doing this at ASI, is, well, we've, we need a corporate account and try to think of why would people follow an account? Um for a corporate, they might want to get notifications about webinars. They might want to get notifications about new content they can go read. But then also, um, a lot of what's happening on Twitter is the customer support model. I don't know if you guys have seen the Best Buy um, TV ad with Twelp Force, and it's like this stadium filled with um, people in blue Best Buy shirts. And someone goes up to the microphone and says, I want to buy a computer for my daughter who's going off to college. And Somebody in the stadium answers her question. And so I think that's another thing. If you, I keep coming back to that, but if, if your technical publications group is tied into the whole customer support strategy, you may need to look at Twitter for being part of that, answering questions, making real connections, shepherding people through what is the right way to submit a support request if that's what you need, um, or just answering questions that to a lot of customer support people might be total softball questions, you know. So that's the idea. Now, it's obviously very early. We don't really know how it's going to be used. Um, I went to, at the STC Summit, I went to Felice Banner's presentation about education and how they're using um, social media for online courses especially, right? And someone in the audience is actually a writer for the CDC and had 99,000 Twitter followers. That. Wow. Blew me away because I was like, I don't even know if I have 99,000 users. But if you think about it, what what were they wanting to follow the CDC for? They wanted some sort of notifications, alerts, um, just information, right? And I think that's the idea is, is figure out how best you can serve whatever information needs your, co your company already has and either use the company Twitter account or make your own that's very focused. You know, I don't know. You know, we actually, uh, Twitter is quite popular where I'm at. Um, everybody, well, at least half my team is on it. And oh, great. our CIO is on it. And a lot of other people are on it, all the interaction designer guys. And it's fun just to have a conversation among your team. I mean, even apart from all the benefits of connecting with users, it does enable conversation among among oh, our own great. writers. And yeah, I mean, in the early days of Twitter, I was seeing a lot of people just using it as their IM client because then you didn't have to have some instant messaging client that, oh, so-and-so's on AIM, but so-and-so's on Yahoo. And so Twitter just became this universal instant messenger. Well, I'll tell you what we've, we've even done. So I took all the Twitter feeds uh, for all the people in our writing team, and I kind of put them into a Yahoo pipe and then put the Yahoo pipe's output onto our SharePoint team page so every time you open our team page it like shows you all the latest tweets that people have done it's it's kind of cool that I way you don't that. really miss them but and it's fun yeah. 
So and well, it helps you guys get known, and yeah, you, you guys can get known as the, those guys. You know, the, I don't know. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, it gives well, you a face and a name. You know. So so I want to ask another question. When we talk about things like Twitter, you know, it's not always clear how to use it, what it's best for. And it seems like the social web is like that. There's a lot of tools out there. Not really sure, you know, are wikis for my users? Are they for our model? Should I be blogging? What should I be blogging about? Uh, Should we be doing podcasts? Will they they use them? It's not like a clear cut, yeah, do this, then that, and, and publish this and you're done. How is this just how social web for documentation is kind of like a, a, a dark force that you're trying to find your way through or is there a clear one, two, three path? You know, I, I don't think there is a clear path. I, you know, I certainly wrote this book hoping to have strategies, you know, the listen first, then share content. And then the last thing you do is build a community around your content, you know? Um, and so some people might call that kind of this prescriptive one, two, three approach. And that wasn't my intent because, you know, overall, um, social media is kind of perilous and fraught with error. And you can really misstep if you're not the right person to be the messenger of a certain message. If you don't have your company's brand down pat, I mean, there's just a lot of potholes along the way. And so I think that the main thing that is, the answer always is it depends and try to gather as much information as you can before um, stepping, you know, into this new land and do a pilot project and do practice projects. And, you know, a lot of what I did was experiment with it outside of work um, by volunteering for open source projects. And it was almost like I had this, this apprenticeship in, in wikis um, is the way I look at a lot of it. And so I don't think it's so much difficult as it is complicated and and mistakes can probably be um, amplified much faster. Well, I, I do like the strategy that you, you laid out and maybe we can, I mean, that you, you refer to in a couple of places and maybe we could just go into it more. Um, you say, listen first, then, then participate, then begin to share and then lead, right? Uh, and I think that's a that's a good like general model. I mean, how else? W- what other kind of specifics could you get to try to encompass all these things? I, I don't think you could be more specific. So, what happens when you break that model? If you go in the reverse order and you just start <laughs> to lead first and listen last, right? And so, actually, you know, I've seen this happen where um, the writers get in their heads. Okay, we're going to build this wiki platform, and and it'll be great. And and I can think of at least, you know, three examples that I, you know, I don't want to call them out as, uh, oh, you kind of got the, the horse before the cart or the cart before the horse. Um, but they built a wiki and they thought of it more as like a publishing platform than a community platform. And so they exported all of their content to it and no one came. There was no attention given to it whatsoever. And so if you... If you do tend to do things out of order, I think you can kind of stumble like that. Now, it's not a huge, I don't think it's a huge faux pas, and I don't think anyone was injured. Um, <laughs> but it does kind of point out where if it's not a case of if you build it, they will come. It's not a baseball field in the middle of Iowa. It is, um, it is this slow growth, you know, small pilot first, um, true collaboration with, with real people, 
that um, just takes a much finer touch, a much more finesse, I think. You know, I, I once had, I'm thinking about this Twitter conversation I had, and I, and I won't get into details, but there's a, a vendor and obviously had followed some tweet, maybe by keyword, or maybe he was actually following me, but <laughs> super abrasive about uh, trying to undercut something I had tweeted about, you know, mm. just really, really attacking. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, man, I, I, I just totally stopped following the user uh, mm-hmm. and, and had this bitter taste in my mouth that even lasts today. And, and so yeah. this con- this idea of listening first is, uh, I think is especially important if you're a corporate vendor, you know, if you're just yeah. an independent person, you have a little more, you, you're more, you're free to do more things, but when you're a company, yeah, you've got to to put on that those listening ears. Yeah, so, and you know, tech workers aren't always trained in the best way to like diffuse something from an angry customer, and we're not always trained in the best way to handle, uh, you know, real attacks on the brand or you know where messaging to the public is really important. And so, you know, I I don't you know it's not always the best match for the tech writer. Yeah, it's another one of those hats that people have to learn to wear, I think. <laughs> I mean, I so think you're right. I, I kind of have a, a final question here. And, I mean, people reading reading this book or thinking about these strategies may think to themselves, why do I have to change? What I'm doing now is just fine. I'm creating a manual and giving it to users and everybody's happy. Why try to engage in conversation and community at all? You know, I I listened to this great radio show from BBC Radio 4 yesterday, and uh, it was about the history and future of the instruction manual. And the the direction they took with the story was much more related to, like, how to repair your car or early camera instruction manuals that actually have really great tips about, you know, put put a hat to cast a shadow over the lens before you take a photo because your photos will be better. And so it was a lot more about um, to helping people use the technology in ways that were um, very like technique-oriented or results-oriented. Like You will get better pictures if you pay attention to lighting while you take photos. And now, if you look at digital camera or cell phone manuals, um, they start out with, Warning, warning, use this at your own risk because you might, I don't know, step off a cliff while trying to get the Grand Canyon in the shot or, you know, and um, and I think that listening to the story, it made me realize that people want more engagement from the companies that, and they want more engagement. And the thing that tech writers can bring to this land of, you know, content strategy where social media is a smaller part of that content strategy is we have great content. We have useful content. We have things that people need to know about the product. And so what I'm advocating is that we find ways to bring it to more people. And we find ways to understand the relevancy to our customers by using social media tools to understand our customers. And so, you know, I think that's the overarching thing. It's not a lot of what we're doing. We know how to do and we're doing it well. There are some things that we could drop in in and not do in order to pay more attention to customer engagement or community building or this idea of uh, social publishing. And so I, you know, I think it's, it's going to be all about priorities and it's going to be all about what is it the company wants and what is it the users want. We're going to be a service model. How can we help? 
so, you know, something you said there kind of struck a chord with me mm-hmm. that um, we have to we have to have this mindset that users can bring value to that they can contribute something of value. And I think yes. a lot of times when I'm writing instruction, I think of my users this kind of naive, not tech savvy person <laughs> who's just kind of going to clutch onto this manual for all the information they need when that's mm-hmm. really not the case. And that's the that's part of the genius of, or the, the appeal of Web 2.0 is that user-generated content, all these blogs and tweets and podcasts gen- created by the masses um, and not, not coming top-down from a company do have incredible value. Yes. And, you know, Andy Oren is, he wrote the forward for the book, and he's an editor at O'Reilly, and he's been there, you know, probably more than 15 years, and he's seen this shift, and, and it was just really, I don't know, just... Wonderful to know that he also sees that it's not just experts standing up, going to the big, huge publisher and getting their book published and saying, I'm the one who knows everything, you listen to me. But it really is about collaborating with the people while they start climbing this ladder of learning and and helping them at any stage they're at to become an expert themselves. And so where can people find your book? Oh, so the best place is probably Amazon.com or BarnesandNobles.com. And um, I'm in, if you're in Austin, I've got a couple bookstores selling it, um, the Barnes & Nobles. And uh, there's a bookstore called Bookwoman. And um, anytime I visit a city, I'm going to take the book around with me and see if bookstores will stock it. But, uh, yeah, it's really great what XML Press and uh, Richard Hamilton are doing um, with the idea behind XML Press to... You create books that help technical communicators find their value, expose their value, really showcase what it is we can bring. And, and I just think it's really exciting to be part of that and have this book available. Yeah, I, you know, I, I really found your book to be highly relevant. And, and you're speaking about all the issues that I'm facing right now. Whereas sometimes other technical writing books are kind of like they, they don't really address the current situation and issues so i really enjoy the relevancy and and you cover so much um with so many good angles and references it's almost like you have a conversation going on with all the sources that you're that you're using in the the, the, from from books to blogs to to podcasts and i even saw my name in there a couple times i was pretty excited it's always fun (laughs) So, so uh all right well thanks ann for talking with me and i'll i'll put a link to your to the book in the show notes and uh, if people want to uh, learn more about Anne, go to justrightclick.com. That's W R I T E. The worst audio URL ever. No, it's catchy. I remember it. I always remember it. All right, Anne. Thanks a lot. Thanks.